0: Max Eden joins us today. He is Research Fellow at American Enterprise Institute, where he directs the Conservative Education Reform Network. He has just issued the 2024 edition of Sketching a New Conservative Education Agenda. That's our topic today. Welcome, Mr. Eden. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Mark. All right. Well, first, tell us what
1: CERN, the network, what does it do? Yeah. So the uh, the conservative education reform network is kind of a, a subsidiary project of the American Enterprise Institute's education policy department. And for, for many years, for kind of the better part of the first two decades that AEI was in the business of education policy, the discussion about education policy was very much a beltway centric phenomenon that was conducted on a kind of bipartisan basis, but a bipartisan basis that leaned kind of to the center left. Right. So Discussions were about kind of topics that we all broadly agreed on, and then we were trying to move within the forty to sixty yard lines on issues like standards and charter school policy and test-based teacher evaluation. But that whole consensus kind of was absolutely demolished uh, between you know the Obama era overreach and the Trump slash also frankly teachers union reaction to that overreach. Right. So whereas from two thousand. Uh, to 2015, you really had an era where you could get kind of chamber of commerce people from from the right and kind of civil rights people from the left in the room to talk policy. The policy conversation in D.C. and the education policy conversation in a national way just imploded from, I would say, 2016 to 2019. So hmm. uh, around 2020, 2021, as my, my boss and colleague Rukes was kind of looking around and surveying the field and trying to figure out ways to, you know, to continue to play a productive role in the policy sphere, it was just eminently clear that what had been a bipartisan policy issue has become a partisan issue, and what had been largely a national issue has become functionally almost exclusively a state issue. Hmm. So CERN, the Conservative Education Reform Network, was launched to kind of do the core things that AEI education would always do, which is not to push particular policies. You know, we take our C3 status very seriously. Um, we don't take institutional positions, but we do try to highlight ideas that we think uh, are worth highlighting and disseminate them to people who might want to hear them and try to you know, influence the course of policy conversations and in some ways promote what we think are good ideas. And so uh, CERN is an effort to kind of, on the one hand, gather everybody who's anybody in education policy who identifies as conservative, who's doing real work out in the States, and then try to... You know, frankly, you know, use them to help generate more good ideas for other people. So, kind of uh, the series that we're talking about today is a product of that. It's part of our sketching a new conservative education agenda series, which is uh, it's, uh, it's up to about I think fifty-four pieces overall, all about twelve fifteen in a word policy agenda pieces. Only about a handful are are published by us. These are almost all exclusively. Ex, uh, commission pieces from people from a variety of backgrounds who bring all sorts of ideas and expertise that you know the handful of us who still sit in D.C. Uh, inside the Beltway talking about education policy can't necessarily think through. What we're doing so you know we appreciate the contributions of everybody to to us, including you know you Mark for a report in our our series for CERN. Uh,
0: l- let me let me ask uh, just for just for uh, uh, our, our listeners, can they get on a mailing list? To receive materials coming out from CERN, the reports, the
1: the white papers, the 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 work that that people do, what should they do? Uh, so actually, the the CERN mailing list is a is a is generally a private member only thing. If anybody has, if anybody has that specific desire, they can absolutely email me directly, and I can put them on. It's it's not as though it's it's that exclusive. Uh, but so so, so I'll, I'll just tell you, just go
0: to aei.org and go look at the education, look you up, and yeah. and go from there. Yeah. Okay, okay. Good, good. Uh to the to the volume here. Uh that you know you 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 introduce it and then you have the contributors. You note in your introduction that uh the energy in the in education sphere has been mostly coming from the left as 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 you noted in uh, in the past. Is this changing? I mean, you you implied things are changing, but, but tell tell us more about that.
1: No, things things have absolutely changed, right? I mean for uh I, I've been kind of doing education policy for more than a decade at this point. It was my, my first real real job out of college and uh you know, for the first seven, eight years when I was doing this and, and as far as I could tell for at least the ten to you know, even twenty, twenty five years prior, the dynamic of education policy was like education is where the left goes to try to change the world and where <laughs> Republican politicians go to try to look nice uh, and maybe at best to try to more efficiently produce a skilled workforce. Right. So there's a little bit of a passion differential between like, we're trying to change the world and we're trying to affect social justice. And we're trying to at best moderately increase reading and math proficiency levels through means that we think are technically appropriate.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Very And, and, but, 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 you know max when when you got two groups in the room and one has energy level and and one what do you want do you want to say the left has a certain uh, moral a moral courage a moral passion that the the right hasn't
1: uh is that the case uh that's that has 100% been the case on this issue i would say but it is but it's changing and it's changing it's changed a lot i would say within the past 3 years right because the the content of the moral message that the left has been pushing really changed dramatically uh there could be longer arguments about you know sources and subterranean elements but publicly and functionally changed dramatically about five years ago when especially in the education policy scene as a kind of second order response to the failure of the policy agenda the prescription changed the diagnosis changed and the entire policy apparatus that funders had built up on the left to push things Just went full anti racist. And so, Hmm. changing the world for the left used to be fixing achievement gaps, helping black and brown kids specifically. We don't need to help the white kids. We don't need to focus on great books. We just need to make sure that black and brown kids can read just as well as the white kids. That's a moral energy that really drove that side for about 20, 25 years. Yeah. Until failure made them think wait, uh, it couldn't be our ideas that are bad. It must be something in the system that's bad. The system must be racist. Our energy needs to go to fixing a racist system. And we know how to do it because ever Max Kennedy told us so. (laughs) So, so, you you know, you know, Max, I I hadn't, I hadn't really put those
0: pieces together. Uh, what's behind this is, is, uh, the, the achievement gap has not closed in some 25 years. Mm -mm. And that, that's the failure that you, that you're pointing to. And, Instead of looking at well, what is our curriculum like? What are what are our pedagogies? What they they looked outward to the system, right? The, the external. That, Max, thank thank you for that. That clarifies something. Yeah. Uh,
1: and it, it's it's you know it's it's more astonishing than even the way that you said it, right? Because for the twenty five years of outside system examination, right, like the policy stuff we were talking about, standards, qua standards, test based teacher accountability quite teacher accountability, Uh, only after the reform philanthropic machine broke down did something like the science of reading actually gain steam. It didn't gain steam because anybody pushed it. It just gained steam because with the oxygen no longer being sucked out of the room, people could think, oh, how do we make sure that kids from grades K through three can read, which is a question that otherwise not really been examined or given sustained attention in the kind of the golden age of bipartisan reform.
0: You know, Max, I, I want to get to the the volume, the, the, the yeah. current edition of your report, but uh, tell our listeners
1: what the term science of reading signifies. So generally, there have been two schools of thought as to how to teach reading. Um, one school of thought is kind of you surround kids with books, you try to impart to them a love of learning, and you try to teach them the intuition of reading. So... You come across a word you don't recognize it well maybe there's a picture you could look at maybe you could just guess a meaning maybe you could kind of think about other words that sound similar and if you don't quite get it just keep going and it'll all come together um that has been kind of the favorite approach from the education professoriate from generally the left to center left uh because the other approach which is just you know phonemic awareness this is ph means fa Pheromone. Pher- what is a pheromone, right? <laughs> um, it's dry, it's a little bit boring, but it works. And the studies, the science have been uh, explicitly clear on this since like the early 90s. There have been, there are very few issues that I think we can say are like conclusively settled when it comes to curriculum pedagogy. But this kind of whole language, three queuing, guesswork model versus the sound out the words to make block noises and then later identify what those block noises means. (laughs) Uh, We've known that the latter is superior to the former for the past 25, 30 years, but just knowing that hasn't meant that it's gained traction anywhere. It's kind of only only in the past two years and frankly, fundamentally only because of a very well-produced and well-done podcast by Emily Hanford that there's actually been any sustained policy energy towards trying to teach kids how to read the right way
0: and and from what i've seen i've had a little experience in this uh in in a lot of the states now science of reading science of reading mm-hmm. it is that they're on they're they're on it that it's it is settled uh but there are still some progressivist state holdouts on on this
1: yeah i mean i think it's it's become i would say there's a red states are pretty uniformly going through it and blue states are more split because there still is like just a strong education professoriate uh you know, way and, and and teachers unions are also you know bought into it. I can't remember the outcome of it, but I do remember that, like the Ohio teachers union, I think sued to block, certainly lobbied against, and I also believe sued to block Dewine's agenda uh, to invest millions of dollars in retraining teachers along these lines.
0: Huh, huh. Well, that that that, that brings up another issue that you raised in your introduction: the teachers unions, in a way, the left has somewhat painted themselves in a corner. The left in education uh, worlds because they're constrained now by interest groups that they become so allied to like the teachers unions and and to outlooks such as the ever more coercive uh, woke stuff does that is that giving conservatives a big advantage in in a lot of these debates now
1: yeah i mean it gives us the flexibility to produce original ideas that aren't simply about you know promoting the system's interests and providing more to the system's constituent members right i mean right. You you think back to the COVID debate and the lines between <laughs> the two sides when it came to, you know, the left wanted to keep schools shut down so teachers could be safe while also putting more money to the system that isn't necessarily needed or even, you know, frankly, they didn't even pretend as though it was needed to reopen versus people on the right who were like, well, maybe we can just give that money directly to parents and maybe we can respond to both the kind of the, the COVID education apocalypse plus the you know, woke unveiling <laughs> with universal education savings accounts, which is, yeah. I mean, not something that we dwell on at length here because it's, it's something that has been happening uh, and it's kind of very much on the mainstream of our, our policy thinking. But geez, just giving parents the money <laughs> right. uh, is something right. five years ago, if you were having this conversation, I would have told you, yeah, maybe one state will do it in a decade. And now we have it up to 10.
0: One of the value, values of the volume that you put together is that the contributions go into some, you know, rather technical matters that a lot of parents don't know about, for instance, accreditation. And, and, but, but the parents have become dissatisfied mm-hmm. with, with instruction for a variety of reasons, uh, what they saw on their on their kids' laptops during COVID. They say, wait a minute, this isn't what I thought was going on in, in schools, or just the continually disappointing uh, achievement results. And so they are concerned about what is happening in the schools, but they have been unaware. I mean, I was to, to a degree unaware of how school boards are part of the system, how accreditation is, is part of it, how teacher training operates, sort of going into just, just the, the logistics of it all and the way in which Things that sound bureaucratic or, or logistical really have a lot of embedded political, ideological content or bias in them. If we go to, actually, the the contribution on accreditation, it's by Stig Leshley. I hope I'm pronouncing his, his, his last name correctly. Yeah. What does he, well, well, first of all, why don't you tell us very quickly, what is accreditation and what does he argue needs to be done
1: about it? so accreditation is fundamentally gatekeeping for federal money for higher education right we have we have these student loans uh if mark Bauerline wants to prop up Bowerline U and say this is my curriculum and these are the degrees that i'm offering uh you can't i mean you could just do that but you couldn't have your students take out federal loans (laughs) to attend your university unless somebody looked at you and said, oh, well, I, I, I trust that Mark Bauerlein knows what he's doing and clearly has a university that meets, uh, that meets standards. And, you know, when put that way, I think parents are broadly supportive of it. Frankly, there, there needs to be some, there clearly needs to be some gatekeeping mechanism so that we don't just give out students to take student loans to any given university or any of them fly by night state. The problem is, uh, you know, Mark name name a major university that has been launched in the past 25 years. Uh, you got me. <laughs> yeah, I can't I can't either. Um, I'm not going to go so far as to say there's been zero, but I'm pretty sure there's been, you know, certainly fewer than five. Yeah. And that's because as time goes on, the creditors become kind of their, their own interest group that's staffed by boards of other universities. It becomes right. a kind of a a cartel like gatekeeping mechanism that is absolutely averse to new entrance and to change uh the key example that some of your listeners might be familiar with is i think the very very noble and you know i'm still optimistic for it effort of the folks uh down at, in in austin at uatx who with all of the money that you could need behind them with all the talent you can need behind them, there's some really top-notch people there right it's taking them years and I I don't know if it's out of line to say, but like it's still an open question as to whether it'll you know get open and function for a few years and get accreditation. Um and that's the absolute best shot that I think new entrants could really mount to it. So what Stig has been arguing. And,
0: and so, they, so they had to go through an accreditation process, and the process is long and complicated. And and the creditors are including more things now that we would find a lot of people find dubious. For example, well, what are your DEI practices? Mm-hmm. That is now a condition of of, accredi- of many accreditors. I mean, there are different accreditors, but they accreditors have to be approved by the federal government, right? Yes.
1: Yeah. So yeah. they're they're um, yeah, and and you and you're seeing you're starting to see pushback on that. There was there was a somewhat high, a high profile case and. In North Carolina, where the university is launching a new kind of center for, for civic life, a new kind of outpost of political theory and civic education within the university. And they got very stern and angry letters from their creditors basically saying, we, we don't like that you're doing this. And here are all the reasons why we think this could put your entire federal funding in, in jeopardy. And the people in North Carolina at this point just said, you guys can frankly shove it, um, but the reason they could say that, and it's still an open question as to whether or not they really can say that, and this is where you get into like into the weeds and things, but um the Trump administration passed a, a regulation that allowed universities to shop around for different accreditors, right? Mm-hmm. So if North Carolina's accreditor, which it should be said accreditors are regional based, if North Carolina's accreditor says we're not gonna let you do this new civic thing, you need to do more DEI along these ways uh if the trump regulation stays in place north carolina can go to the folks in the southeast or the folks out west and say hey yeah. how about we be accredited by you and then you get some market in accreditation and one accreditor gets hopefully known as the the not woke or the more permissive accreditor when it comes to the kind of theories of education and aspects about education that more than half of america think universities should promote uh or they don't and so that's kind of one part of the overall argument for accreditation reform. The argument that Stig was making yeah. is that, uh, you know, aside from simply, you know, new traditional universities and the way that the traditional university system functions, there can and should be entrants into higher education that are eligible for federal, whose students are eligible for federal student loans, that are specifically geared towards workforce development in a strategic, conscientious way. But that would require an entirely new accreditation paradigm. None of these accreditors who yeah. currently accredit four year flagship universities would really be fit or willing to accredit, um, you know, let's say certain coding academy type things. Yeah, you Would need a new accreditor for that, which you would, which as, as you mentioned, you you can do legally under the law right now. If you were to have a conservative, frankly, Department of Education, with a political appointee who decided, you know what, I'm going to make it my bureaucratic administrative mission for the next 18 months to two years, the first, you know, time of the of Trump 47, whoever Republican we get next, and I'm going to try to set it up from an accreditor level so that people can enter the field with effective job training that's tied towards outcomes, that's eligible for federal aid in the same way that a four-year degree in basket weaving is at, you know, Oklahoma no. State University.
0: Right. Good. Good. Uh Patrick Graf has a piece on teacher spending accounts, but i i want to jump ahead mm-hmm. to Jenny Clark's entry because she has a contribution on e s a s which have been a hot thing in in the last few years they're 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 spreading just just tell us what are e s a s and and maybe give us do do we see any signs of of success or failure and any 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 evaluation you, you review you
1: would give to what we've seen so far out of the ESAs, what does ESA stand for? Yeah, so ESA stands for Education Savings Account, and when people think about school choice, we tend to think about you know private school vouchers, right? Like the government gives you four thousand dollars, and you can spend that four thousand dollars on an you know buzzword accredited private school. <laughs> um, ESA is a different model. ESA is is. Simply the state gives you 4000 or as the case usually is, closer to $7,000, and you can spend it on your child's education in virtually any way that you see fit. Um, so this is, you know, I mentioned earlier, this is like, if we had talked about this five years ago, I would have estimated one state, in particular the state of Arizona, might have, might have a system where any parent in the state can, instead of sending their ch- child to a public school... Draw a you know debit card from the state with seven thousand dollars on it that they can put toward a very wide, very permissive range of educational expenses. Um, let,
0: let me let me yeah. interrupt for one second, Max. And were there legal challenges to parents sending their
1: kids to religious schools? Um, I mean, separation under, issues under under the voucher paradigm, yes, there was, um, and that played out kind of. Through the courts, it was resolved, I think, in the early 2000s in Zelman versus versus Harris in a case around the the, the Cleveland, Ohio voucher system, uh, because there was a substantial, you know, there's a substantial uh, objection raised to public money going directly to a private school. Um, Further Supreme Court cases have kind of uh, continued to affirm that such a thing is legal and it's Okay. Now, as a matter of, like, federal law, illegal, there are some states that have specific amendments, so-called Blaine amendments, that will still prohibit money going directly to private schools. But ESAs short-circuit that because— You're giving the, the money to the parents. You're giving the money to the parents. You're not saying, on Mark's behalf, here. this $7,000 is going to St. Francis Catholic High School. <laughs> you're saying, on Mark—you're well, you're saying, this $7,000 is going to Mark and Mark could spend it on St. Francis high school at that point, it's a private decision that Mark is making with grant money that he's given. It's not, it's not state flow.
0: And how, how, how's, how how are those performed? Do you think, do you see any signs of where we are
1: or is it it too soon? It's too soon. Um, like Arizona had a moderately sized program operating for the past five, 10 years, but, it was one of depending on you count nine or ten states that's gone to universal in the past two years so uh we're still in the very early phases of adoption we're still i think years away from any sort of formal evaluation and frankly you know some school choice advocates don't like to say this or hear it i'm not sure that we'll ever actually see a reliable evaluation because these programs aren't really designed to be evaluated, right. <laughs> not tracking right. it systematically. It's hard to figure out what the control group would be. Right, It is in some ways just an act of a, a statement of faith on behalf of policymakers that parents can do better. And honestly, if evidence comes in to suggest that it's not raising test scores, raising math scores, I don't suspect that would dramatically sway policymakers necessarily, because yeah. much of the impetus for this wasn't about, Oh, we still have this achievement gap. Oh, proficiency still at 32%. It was about, well, if we're compelling a mom to send her daughter to a school where they might trans- socially transition her behind her back and teach her about the importance of getting, you know, sterilizing hormones at the age of seven, maybe she should have the option to not do that and still have resources to educate her child.
0: I don't know, Max. I, I frankly don't trust parents to take make, make decisions for their own children. Uh, but, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Okay. Yep.
1: <laughs> what is public school open enrollment? Uh, so public school open enrollment is another form of school choice, right? Um, but it's a, a system that's purely within the public sector. So what we all grew up with, um, you know, we have different generations, but still we prior to this kind of General public school enrollment push about ten fifteen years ago was uh, well you you live in, in in Doverton and you send your kids to Doverton public schools because you bought a house in Doverton you pay taxes to Doverton and so you have a right to send your kid to public schools in Doverton but you don't have a right to send your public your kids to public schools in Beaverton next door because you're not a resident of Beaverton <laughs> uh, and you don't take, pay taxes to Beaverton public school open enrollment. Uh, says that you can and should be able to send a kit to just send your child to a school outside of your zone school district, so if you have some particular reason why you think your child would excel in Beaverton and there you are in Doverton, if you're in a state that has embraced public school open enrollment, you would have the opportunity to do so now it's an extremely messy thing the details of it are 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 myriad there are a lot of states that say they do it and don't really do it um there has been, there was a a really interesting map that was once published by the Fordham Foundation, Fordham Institute, where uh, it showed Ohio, which has optional open school enrollment in districts that were and were not participating. And, you know, as you would kind of expect, it had, uh, you know, a kind of a a circle of non-participation in the suburbs, ringing the urban areas, and other than that, you know, broad participation. Mm -hmm. So those are uh, the kind of you know, going back to the the moral message that predominantly resonates from, comes from appeals to the left, but has some crossover appeal to aspects of the right, too, the, the message of your zip code shouldn't determine your, uh, your education is a powerful one. And so that's just, you can send your kid to a public school in a different zip code.
0: 20 years ago, we heard a lot about charters, charters, charters all the time. Another contributor in your volume, Ian Kingsbury, notes that charters were sort of the darling of conservative reformers, but they faded a bit in in the movement. We don't hear as much. Is that true? And, and if so, what, why is that?
1: Yeah, that is as true, and if anything, possibly kindly understated by Ian, who I otherwise very much you know like and respect. But um, there was there was kind of a a dual theory of charter schooling that I don't think that advocates really realized the tension of until maybe it was too late. One theory was that we are going to allow a space for innovation and for innovative models to flourish. And we're going to have more freedom and flexibility of educators to create particular school cultures. And we'll let a thousand flowers bloom and we'll have more unique schools and maybe we'll learn, we'll learn lessons from it. Uh, There was another theory that like, We can build better schools if we build from scratch. We can build schools that close the achievement gap. We can build schools that raise reading and math scores. We know how to build the mousetrap better. And if we just have the freedom to build the mousetrap better, then we will be able to close this achievement gap. And those two visions uh, ended up coming into tension because to maintain your charter, you know, a charter school is technically a public school, but instead of being responsive to a locally elected school board as its governing authority, It is authorized by and held accountable by contract to uh, an entity determined by state law, very frequently a nonprofit organization or a a school board uh, as well. And what happened over the course of a couple of decades of charter schooling is it became predominantly, although not exclusively, a vehicle to try to provide kind of more rigorous standardized education to low-income black and brown students and so you had these darling models of america like kip the knowledge is power preparatory academy that mm-hmm. slogan was work hard be nice and was a no excuses model explicitly you know prided itself on its strict discipline you walk along this line in the hallway you give kind of these chants in the morning uh and it got some pretty substantial results um but it also eventually fell victim to the woke revolution right because right. i um, saw that they eventually decided that to drop the slogan work hard be nice because work hard be nice according to them promoted white supremacy <laughs> um, of course and 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 by their theory it did you know by their theory the idea of like holding kids to high standards when those standards are set by civilization and society of strict discipline of like you know, having college going as 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 the north star of all academics. Um those are you know, those are societally imposed standards that are hegemonic and oppressive if you buy into those priors as as eventually the pipeline did. So charters went from being a kind of a something that was that could have been intended to change schools for everyone to something that became targeted towards a specific group for a specific purpose and then because of kind of that personnel capital and ideological structure flipped on itself. And, you know, a lot of conservative Republicans have lost interest in it. The Democrat interest in it was always tenuous, was frankly, you know, in in a way that it's probably still unbalanced, not positive, was dramatically artificially inflated by Barack Obama, who had a substantial amount of political capital to bear that, uh, you know, he you happen to get a Democratic president who is elected against the interests of teachers unions. Turns out for a couple of years, the Democratic Party can toe a national line that is not in the interest of teachers unions, but only for a couple of years. So the Democrats have a natural interest against him, against them. The Republicans uh, have no more ideological affinity towards them and, you know, no particular constituency that they serve. So they've certainly fallen out of the conversation. They're still there. They're still they're still doing their work. They serve. Um, 7% of American school school students are about, I think, 2.4 million, Um, but they've really fallen out of the policy conversation. They've certainly fallen out of the policy conversation on the right.
0: There's more in in the book, discussions of student privacy, of so-called bias reporting system, parents' rights uh, issues, uh, but for now, the volume is Sketching a New Conservative Education Agenda. Max Eden, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much, Mark.